This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. We'll talk about the perils and promise of genetic testing with the man famous for debunking celebrity health trends. Plus, she's enjoyed huge success and faced daunting challenges. That's why at just 40 years of age, Canadian opera singer Misha Bruger gossman has penned a memoir. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. New research from McMaster University suggests life on Earth began in warm little ponds after meteorites splashed into them about 4 billion years ago. A professor and his student ran the numbers to test the theory put forward by Charles Darwin in the 1870s. The availability of new investigative tools is the reason a cold case review has been launched by a retired FBI agent and a team of 19 forensic experts. They hope to be able to identify the people who betrayed the hiding place of Anne Frank and her family to the Gestapo in 1944. The findings should be revealed on August the 4th, 2019, which will also be the 75th anniversary of the arrest of the Frank family. Scarborough Collegiate Institute, now called R.H. King Academy, held a very special reunion this week. And though only 11 former students attended, taking into account that they are all in their 90s, it's quite remarkable. This year marks the 70th consecutive reunion for the class of 1947, and they still remain friends. The Royal Canadian Mint is paying tribute to Canada's fallen with a new toonie commemorating the Battle of Vimy Ridge. The new coin depicts two soldiers standing on either side of the Vimy Memorial in France. Canadian troops secured a hard-fought victory at Vimy in April 1917. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Genetic testing has opened vast new possibilities for curing disease. It has also raised ethical questions and started to be used as a kind of entertainment with mail-order tests. It's a topic near and dear to health professor Timothy Caulfield, and we now continue our conversation on his new TV series, A User's Guide to Cheating Death. This is a topic that I actually do a lot of research on. So this is one of the areas uh, that has been part of my academic career for the last couple decades. (laughs) And uh, so this was a... uh a, an episode that I was worried about, right? Because I was wondering how it was going to play out given my sort of my own personal investment in the topic. And I was very happy how, how it turned out because it really highlights how complicated it is despite all the research that has gone on and a lot of really exciting stuff. How much can genetic information really tell us about how to live a healthy lifestyle? And that's one of the messages that we really 
want to get across because there are now all these really absurd genetic products out there, you know, genetic dating services. There's genetic service that you can get, which I get for the show, as you know, that tells you what kind of wine you're supposed to drink. It's a complicated story, right? And as you know, I've involved two of my kids in, in, in this one, right? That really highlights, I think, how perhaps we shouldn't let genes dictate uh, our future, but rather treat it just as a, another data point in our healthcare life. There's also epigenetics, which is everything else that determines what happens. Um, What's the danger of all this genetic information? Well, I think that um, we need to be careful not to overemphasize the harms too, right? Because you, know, you have this overemphasis of the benefits, right? Which I think has been perhaps overemphasized, but genuinely exciting work going on, no doubt. And then people have also been very concerned about the harms, that people are going to react um, you know, adversely to bad genetic information or there's going to be severe genetic discrimination. To date... To date, those two fears really haven't played out as expected. Uh, but there are. There are harms. I think that it can distract us, right, and, and cause us to emphasize uh, the individual as opposed to sort of public health issues. You know, if it's all, if it's your genes that are causing this, you know, it's your responsibility to act, you know, why haven't you? And there's some interesting research to show that that's the case, that it does kind of change the narrative about public health. And I also think that it can be misleading from a marketing perspective. You know, people are offering these services, you know, promising stuff from, you know, your genetic information that they really can't deliver. I have a very personal perspective on this. On the one side, I'm alive today because my doctors knew about a genetic mutation that Mm -hmm. I have. On the other, in this day and age, people who have this are, you know, using artificial insemination to get pregnant. And if uh, a zygote or a fetus has the same thing, they're getting rid of it. So I could have been on the cutting room floor. Well, it is, as you know, and we try to do this in the episode, right? We, in a lot of the episodes, we go on this journey where we start with, I won't say the frivolous, but the sort of more curious, right, part of the story. And then we kind of segue to the more Serious, and as you know, we've interviewed for the show people that got genetic testing because of genetic risk factors. Um, and as personalized medicine evolves, you know, it's going to be hopeful that we're going to be able to tailor uh, treatments and drugs according to our, our genetic information. Right? Well, that's that's what I was lucky enough to yeah. benefit from, yeah. and and we hope that we're going to see see more of that. But what do we do with that, you know, that genetic information, that powerful genetic information? And I think part of it is, you know, to be ensure people realize exactly how predictive it is, you know, and how predictive it isn't, right? I think we need to be make sure that, that you know, I call it genohype, that we don't overemphasize what this genetic information can really tell us. It's just a piece of the story, a piece of a very complex story. Are we going to be able to eradicate certain diseases? Well, you know, as you know, we have gene editing now, right? Um, it's still, again, early days there. Keep in mind, we're, you know, we're still doing animal studies, etc. But the hope is perhaps in the future we're going to be able to use the gene editing technique to modify, particularly with the monogenetic diseases. So these are diseases where if you have a particular gene mut- mutation, you get the disease, like cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs, those kinds of diseases, perhaps in the future, we're going to be able to uh, modify our, our genes in that in that way. We have to wait and see. Again, we want to be cautious not to overpromise, but you know, I'm hopeful that there's going to be some exciting advances. Okay, Timothy Caulfield, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
You can watch a user's guide to cheating death Mondays at 9 p.m. on Vision TV. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, Canadian opera superstar Misha Bruger Gossman talks candidly about her 150 pound weight loss and the personal hardships she's endured to make it to the top. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. That is Canadian opera singer Misha Bruger Gossman, and her life is operatic in every sense. She's had great success on the world stage and also faced life threatening illness, marital breakup, and loss, which is why she's out with her first book, Something Is Always on Fire. When did you know that you wanted to be a singer? <laughs> well, in the book, I say I don't remember having you know, independent thought that didn't somehow involve that, you know what I mean? Like, it, I was just born capital S, the species singer. So I don't know that I would have done with as much fervor and passion any other job. But you started off playing the piano, not singing in front of the audience. Well, I started off thinking that that was what I was supposed to be doing, yes. But I was always a much better singer than I was a pianist. You come from a fairly small place in New Brunswick. Yes. How were you able to develop, you know, a world-class talent from there? That is a question that only a city person would ask. I think that there is a tremendous amount of mentoring that happens in small towns, and there's something to be said for having a smaller pool with bigger opportunities that are more fruitful and uh, frequent. I had a lot of performance opportunities come to me long before I did this full time and starting as early as I did, of course, with whom I did, you know, the music director of my home church, David Steves, you know, I, I know that starting early, as early as I did, like voice lessons at six or seven years old, like I, I know that that isn't the path for a lot of singers. For most singers, it starts much later. You mentioned your home church. You come from a family of pastors, and your faith is central to all of this. Yes. It's um, the barometer and the backbone and, you know, my service to God and my faith in Jesus has been the relationship that has frankly, kept me alive and kept me moving forward, left to my own devices. I think I wouldn't understand that my life has a purpose. I wouldn't feel unconditionally loved. You talk also about the challenges you've had in your life. You talk a lot about weight. Uh, there was a point when you were up to what? Two, like, my highest was two, like, 57. 257, let's be honest. It's, 257? And I thought I read 350 in there. Oh, no, 357 is um, exa- it's so funny because it's been 
it was 2006 when I started losing the weight. So it's been 11 years since I've been 250 or 357 pounds. But yes, it was a lot of weight. It was an entire adult male. You talk, though, about how uh, when you were concentrating more on opera, it's okay to be large in opera. And you even have some amusing passages on how when when uh, a reviewer would describe you as well-nourished, you'd <laughs> tell yourself they were referring to your voice. <laughs> it was a well-nourished instrument. I think that's what they must have meant. You were always, I've known you for quite a while, and you were always confident, no matter how big you are. That is true. And I never was discriminated against or People never made opinions about me based on weight because I never led with my weight. I wasn't ashamed of myself. I wasn't a victim of self-loathing. I was never motivated by insecurity. Like, when I went to lose weight, it was to make myself fit for the fight. So I saw it as a kind of part of my training, even though I was very emotional about it. Uh, So ultimately, you had bypass surgery, and you also took up the extremely punishing practice of Bikram yoga, hot yoga, in a 120-degree room. (laughs) I did what I knew would work. You also went through a terrible, life-threatening episode. You nearly died. Yeah. Tell us what happened. My aorta exploded, and I was undergoing emergency open-heart surgery, when I should have been singing with the Toronto Symphony, in 2009. And I really did feel like my body in some way had betrayed me, like I thought we'd entered into some kind of agreement because I had lost all the weight. And then, you know, my aorta explodes. And you understand the balance of having something happened to you that kills 87% of the people it happens to. And the fact that I am an opera singer, which is a profession that, you know, less than 13% of the world, by far, by a large margin, do. So the singularity of the experiences of my life are on par both in the pro and con pile. Do you understand what I mean? I do. You've also um, lost a baby. Two. Two. Yeah, that sucks. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. That is the worst. I can still find myself in tears about that. To miscarriage. Yeah, I mean, that's mostly what people with our kids call them, but they're babies who died through no fault of my own. And I just ache sometimes with the grief of that. And it's after I have two beautiful... Perfect, genius son, (laughs) who I, you know, of course, love like parents love their kids, you know. And, uh, but, you know, it's the joy that they bring to me, again, is on par with the grief I feel over the losses, the two that came before them. You married very young to Marcus, who is the Brugger in Brugger-Gossman, and you're not married anymore. I'm not. Um, Now I know a million things happened, but I think the easiest thing would be to point to my own infidelity, even though I know that it's never just that. And I think anybody who's gone through that knows that. 
I would marry at the exact same time the exact same person. He is, of course, you know, the love of my life and the father of my children. So he's an incredible dad. So I am blessed to have a co-parent. But I'm also thankful for the emotional real estate that is freed up when you're not partnered anymore. Do you think that the fact that you have such a big career and a big life and, um, you know, Marcus is a great guy. I know him, but yeah. is kind of more like the rest of us. <laughs> Did that have something to do with it? No, I think that's too easy. You know, it would be easy to point to my job or my, you know, largeness and think that those were reasons. But I, I know that there is a lid for every pot and I accept the portion of the blame that belongs to me for my marriage failing. How do you see your life going forward? I uh, am looking for like the next outlandish thing to attempt. <laughs> and it's, um, it's an exciting place to be in addition to like, you know, my full schedule as an opera singer. Okay, thank you, Misha. Really great to talk to you. Thank you. That was Canadian opera superstar Misha Bruger-Gossman. Something is Always on Fire is published by HarperCollins. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we pay homage to the man who taught us all how to free fall. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your International Arts Date Book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. The 61st London Film Festival is underway. This year's highlight, the UK premiere of Loving Vincent, the world's first animated film using painted pictures. It took more than 100 artists painting in Van Gogh's style to finish the movie. Women directors account for a quarter of the films shown at the London Film Festival. After six years of renovations, the Monet de Paris has reopened, inviting visitors to rediscover a museum dedicated to the theme of minting, artisan crafts, and exceptional heritage collections. In Moscow, an exhibit has opened celebrating the life and work of notorious British spy Kim Philby, a member of the Cambridge Five who fed secrets to the Kremlin during the Cold War. And car historians may want to visit Detroit. The birthplace of the Model T has opened a replica of the secret room where Henry Ford developed the vehicle. As the Ford PK Avenue Plant Museum celebrates the 109th birthday of the low-cost, reliable transportation icon. More than 15 million Model Ts were built before production ended in 1927. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. Tom Petty passed away after suffering a full cardiac arrest last week in his Malibu home. He was just 66 years old. Petty dropped out of high school at 17 to join his first band. He fronted the Heartbreakers for 40 years and is best known for the hits Free Fallen, Stop Dragging My Heart Around, American Girl, Breakdown, and Refugee. His band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. 
In the late 80s, George Harrison formed the Traveling Wilburys, which initially just included Harrison, Jeff Lynne of the Electric Light Orchestra, Roy Orbison, and Bob Dylan. But when Harrison accidentally left a guitar at Petty's house, he stopped by to pick it up and asked Tom to join in on their session. The rest, as they say, is history. During Petty's last tour of North America earlier this year, he revealed his days spent living life on the road were not so appealing anymore, and he expressed a desire to spend more time with his family. Here is Tom Petty with Free Fallen. She's a good girl, loves her mom. That was Tom Petty with Free Fallen. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer Moses Snymer. Produced by Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.